This day, last year, we woke up to the news of the full-scale invasion of the Russian army in Ukraine. And for many of us in Europe, this morning was a surprise. At one level, we knew that such a war was a possibility. We knew that Russia was capable of doing ugly things. But at the same time, we didn't really believe that a proper full-scale war was possible. And this is because, at least for us in Europe, we considered Russia not necessarily an ally, but we considered Russia more like a partner. After all, we had seen so many times our head of states being amicable with Putin, signing treaties and declarations of friendships. We were hitting our homes and businesses with Russian gas. We had cultural ties, we had trade ties. And yesterday I was watching uh, the nationalist fiesta of Putin in uh, Luzinski Stadium. And I was thinking it was only four years ago, the summer of 2018, where in that stadium, it was the World Cup final. And I remember Macron, the president of France, watching the final together with Putin. Or I remember watching football and before the game, seeing the sign sponsored by Gazprom. Gazprom is the state-owned uh, major Russian gas company. So this is how, on the morning of the 24th of February, we woke up and we thought, how did this happen? Why did this happen? Russia, our partner, did this? This is Nikos, and this is New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. With me today is Zimovitz Govin, and we're going to talk about the, Russian, the, the European perspective on the war. What was Europe's policy towards Russia in the build-up towards the war, and whether something actually changed after the war. So, Zimovit, actually, you are quite closer to where all the things are happening. So, what's your take in the situation? Oh, yeah. I So, a lot of people, when you ask them, they will remember specifically what they did when 9-11 uh, happened. And... I do remember that as well, even though I was nine years old at that time. Uh, but the war, the invasion from from last year, from one year ago, uh, is also such a event for me. I remember very vividly uh, what I was doing. I woke up at 6 a.m. It was still pretty dark here in Poland. And I was checking the news because we knew that something might happen we we were wondering if 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 it's a bluff we were we were wondering if if something happens it will probably happen in the donbas uh, re region and so we were definitely not expecting a full scale invasion a an attempt to take over kiev uh, the capital city and so i checked the news and i was terrified I immediately woke up my wife and we were literally terrified and scared. And to be honest, for the following two weeks straight, uh, I was checking the news all the time. What if Russia takes over Kyiv? What if they take over whole Ukraine? What will happen next? Will Poland will, will, will be next? Um, and so, yeah, that was... <laughs> quite an experience uh, that um, that wasn't very pleasant. So today we are going to be talking about the biggest war 
in Europe since World War II. And so it's obviously a major event, but the reason we want to talk about it, it's because by seeing, by analyzing uh, European countries' relationships with Russia, uh, by seeing their attitude towards Russia before the invasion, as well as after the invasion, it will help us in drawing some lessons from either their mistakes or what they did good or correctly or both. And so we want to start by talking about Europe in the relation to Russia before the uh, in invasion. And the area that most people will be familiar with when it comes to this partnership between Europe, Western Europe and Russia is the area of energy. So the biggest question when the war started and we saw the sanctions vis-a-vis -vis towards Russia, you're going to talk later more about the sanctions. The biggest question is, what are we going to do with our uh, energy? If Putin closes the, uh, shuts down the gas transfer to Europe, or if Europe says we don't need any more your gas, what are we going to do since we rely so much on Russian gas? So the first question I want to examine is, why did we end up relying on Russian gas? Did we need it? Was this an option that uh, was uh, good for us and we didn't have anything else to, and it, the only alternative was Russian gas or we freeze? And the answer of course is no, this was not the, our only option. So interestingly, the actual relationship between West and Russia when it comes to energy does not even start at the days of Russian Federation. It starts at the days of Soviet Union. And it starts by West Germany. We are in the early 70s and Willy Brandt, the chancellor of West Germany, had his big vision of the Ostpolitik, which was a, a policy towards friendship towards East Germany and Soviet Union. Now to put this into a, some historical context, we're in the 90, early 1970s, means that still half of Europe is basically under occupation by the Red Army. We're only a couple of years after the tanks of the Warsaw Pact, Soviet tanks marching through Prague. We're some years after the bloody, uh, the, 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 the bloody intervention of the Soviet Union in Hungary. We are some years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Or when it comes to East Germany, it was the time when it was the biggest uh, sponsor of uh, world terrorism. And this is a time where Western leaders think it's a good time to give them their hand and say, let's be friends. So this policy towards becoming friends with Soviet Union and East Germany had as one of its major aspects, the energy sector. So this was the time when Soviet Union had found mass amounts of uh, gas in its, uh, in its uh, field. And the deal was that West Germany would export steel and it would import gas from Soviet Union. Now, why did West, Western Europe need to import gas? Why couldn't it rely on its own energy sources? Well, here is what we say almost every week, bad ideas, have bad consequences. So this was the time when it was the beginning of the narrative that we have limited resources because we are too consumerist, because uh, the, the, there is this idea that there are limits to growth. Literally in 1972, it was the year 
where these major reports uh, consumed the Western world, which says that we're going to run out of raw materials, we're going to run out of uh, energy sources. Also, it was a time when we have the beginning of uh, the environmental movement. So for a variety of reasons that have to do with the West, lack of confidence in itself that it can produce the energy, or even its, its lack of will to produce its energy, the solution was we will import energy from Russia. So by the end of the Cold War, so this starts in the early 70s, by the end of the Cold War in 1989, Germany imports one third of its gas demand from Soviet Union. And it wasn't the only country. France, for example, was importing also a percentage of its gas from Soviet Union. And to cut the long story short, even after the end of the world uh, of the Cold War. So uh, there was a point not that long ago that 80% of the gas needs of Europe came from somewhere else. Majority of it from Russia, but also elsewhere. Algeria is another, is another example. So what happens then when the Soviet Union collapses? So then European leaders, again, with the center being Germany, not anymore West Germany, but now the unified Germany. So Gerhard Schroeder, the chancellor back then, has a big vision for an energy partnership with Russia. And this is what you've heard as the Nord Stream 1. So this would be a, a pro an energy project where we import gas straight from Russia to, Europe to, to German soil. And the straight part is important because Nord Stream would bypass uh, the countries that are in between, which means that Russia could now have more of leverage vis-a-vis -vis these countries. Because it would tell, for example, we will give gas to Germany, but we're not going to give gas to Ukraine, for example. So this is what happens around uh, the early 2000s. Now, the Nord Stream 1, it starts operating at some point in 2011. Now, 2011 is an important time because only three years earlier, we had the intervention by Russia in Georgia. So at that point, European leaders should at least start thinking, maybe here we're dealing with, uh, with a nation and with a leader which are not to be fully trusted. What does indeed you, instead, what does Europe does? They say, okay, this is such a great partnership, let's do more. Let's introduce Nord Stream 2. So this would mean more energy influx from Russia to, uh, to Germany. So this is uh, Nord Stream 2 was a plan and it started. Uh, so the idea was we need, we need more energy cooperation. Now, another key moment then is, of course, 2014. Because 2014, we have the destabilization the further destabilization of Ukraine by Russia, initially with the political intervention and then with the actual uh, intervention in uh, Crimea and the actual uh, support towards the separatist forces in Luhansk and Donetsk. So the whole international community, the whole world sees in front of their face Russia intervening in another sovereign state. And what is actually, the, what is actually the, the big idea that European leaders have? We need to 
inter we, we need to further cooperate with Russia. And this is when they sign uh, Nord Stream 2. Now, you could say, how can it be that at the same time, Europeans were imposing some small sanctions to Russia, and at the same time, de de deciding that we need further integration, energy integration and cooperation with Russia. And I found the quote by an analyst which perfectly, perfectly captures how Europeans do not think in principles. Do not think in principles. Listen to this. Quote. So he's asked, this, this analyst is asked, how is it possible that on the one hand, we tell Russia that you did something very bad in Ukraine and we're going to impose actions. And on the other hand, we want further cooperation with them. And here's the quote. This is the core of diplomacy. It's not because you are not friends on one issue that you cannot be friends on another. So the idea was, look, we are not going to be friends when it comes to Ukraine, but we're going to be friends when it comes to energy. And this is the, not the only way at that time when Europe is, and the West in general, is turning towards Russia. Around 2018, it was the time when Donald Trump, if you remember, had pulled off the nuclear deal in Iran. But the European Union was desperate for a deal with Iran because, of course, uh, when you, how can we live without a deal with Iran? And we are sure that we can trust Iran, apparently. So what does Europe do when Trump says, I'm out of the Iran deal? They turn to Russia. They turn to Russia. So they say, look, you have some leverage of Iran. Let's be partners here. Sure, we have our disagreements when it comes to Ukraine, but we are friends when it comes to energy. And now we also want to be friends when it comes to the Iranian deal. And the French President Macron, during that time, he, he says something like, uh, we know there have been some uh, misunderstandings, but we are uh, working on our relationships. Misunderstandings. 2008 was a misunderstanding, apparently. The 2014 intervention in Ukraine was a misunderstanding. And also to remind you that in 2018, we had the, cru we had the crucial event of, two Ro of a Russian uh, count of uh, someone who was uh, a spy against Russia being poisoned within UK soil, being poisoned probably for, for what we know from Russia. It was never officially admitted, but all everyone knows it's probably Russia. So only months after this, only months after this, the French president says we need to work closer with Russia because uh, this is, uh, all this is a misunderstanding and we have our differences, but we need to work closer and of course around that time is when we decide to work closer also with Nord Stream 2. Of course the Nord Stream 2 never actually worked because uh, a couple of days before uh, the beginning of the war the European leaders realized actually when Russia declared that it's officially annexing uh, Donetsk and Lohansk that's when the Germans said, okay, Nord Stream 2 is uh, out. So this is the story of the unprincipled approach to, of Europe towards Russia. And one last thing, Zimov, before I ask your commentary on this. Let's try and Stillman, what was Europe trying to do? So the idea was a rich Russia is to our best interest. 
and a Russia which is, which is closely tied to us is to our best interest. Because if we become partners, we are not going to, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not to anyone's interest to start a conflict with one of your partners. So we believed that Putin wants what is good for Russia, and we believed that we'd be better off by being partners rather than being adversaries with Putin. And we saw how this worked out. Yeah, so let's recap. We have uh, invasion of Georgia in, 20, uh, in 2008. We have uh, invasion of Ukraine in 2014, in 2014. We, we have the poisonings, not to mention various cyber attacks, not to mention other threats. And nonetheless, despite all of these actions, uh, hostile actions, um, you can't be more hostile than, than that, than uh, invading other country. Despite all of that, European leaders, or at least most of them, acted as if Russia was a normal state. So they basically failed to see Russia as what it really is, and that there's a huge difference between a free country and an authoritarian state, which basically uses force as part of its foreign policy. Um, so it's like, Nikos, it's like dealing with thieves in the same way that you deal with honest people, with honest traders. Um, now, if they did see that, that difference, then the question is, why were their actions and their attitudes so short-sighted? Why didn't they act on their knowledge? And I, I think you already touched upon this point. It's because their actions and their policies were not principled. They lacked principles. And we could say that they were, in fact, pragmatists. So they were acting at the range of the moment instead of principles. And now, when we think about the invasion of 2022, we could say that Europe is partly to be blamed because virtually all experts argue that Russia was actually counting on Europe. They were thinking that Europe will not do much, that they will not impose real sanction, real sanctions on Russia, and, they, and that they will probably force Ukraine to make some peace with Russia on Russian terms. They were counting on that, and they had good reasons to do so. They had very, very good reasons to do so. After Georgia and after 2014, after the poisonings, after cyber attacks, after all of that, they had very good reasons to think that Europe wouldn't do much. And you know, if they if they had achieved their goal of taking over Kiev in three days, who knows what would have happened. So let so me let me emphasize what you said, Zimov. Let me emphasize one point. Yeah. Nord Stream 2 is signed after Ukraine in 2014. So there's no excuse we didn't know. 
after after Russia takes the the provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk, one year later, European leaders still think it's a good idea to rely on these people for our energy independence. I mean, forget the Iran deal. Think about this: that we rely on on uh, on on running our energy. We rely on this guy, and we already know that a year ago he did this. So. Ignorance is not a, is not an excuse. I just want to make sure that the audience understands the timeline. It's not that they couldn't expect that Putin would do something bad because he did it before they signed Nord Stream 2, before they signed further integration with Russia when it comes to when it comes to uh, energy. Continue. Yeah, so we could say that up until the invasion, countries such as Ger such as Germany or, or France, so the biggest, the wealthiest countries in Europe, well, apart from the UK, were treating Russia like a normal part, uh, like a normal partner. Now, of course, I don't want to say that they're, that it's only their fault, because even Poland, which now some, uh, maybe a lot of experts call uh, one of the leaders uh, in helping Ukraine, Poland was no better. Um, the ruling party, law and justice, was best friends with people like Orban from uh, Hungary, Salvini from Italy, or Le Pen from France, which are all Putin's friends. So, and well, basically, today, today, these days they're more careful. So they, uh, they have given different types of support to, to Ukraine, but you're right, at that time they were more on the apologetic side that well, Russia has its rights and uh, you know, it's it's a good partner and all that. Yeah, so even anti-Russian Poland, such such anti-Russian uh, Poland wasn't really acting on any principles. It was all uh, range of the moment, pragmatist, unprincipled uh, actions um, without taking into account all the relevant context, uh, all that has happened. And um, so we could say, I think that the European leaders' lack of, of decisive actions against Russian imperialism contributed to the invasion in the sense of encouraging Russia to do it because as I said, they believed and again, they had reasons to believe that no real sanctions would be imposed, right? And I think that there's a relevant quote, which is from Rand, um, from her essay, Altruism as Appeasement, um, which I think is applicable to international relations. Quote, the truly and deliberately evil men are a very small minority. It is the appeaser who unleashes them on mankind. And a few sentences later, when the ablest men turn into cowards, the average men turn into brutes. And so we could say that the European leaders before the invasion were appeasers and they unleashed Putin, in this case on Ukraine, but I think that ultimately also on themselves. Now there's also one other part which I think is also important. At 
to, to this short-sightedness, to this disbelief, although I'm shocked that they didn't be, be, believe that a major war in Europe is still possible. Uh, but nonetheless, they underfunded their militaries. European countries didn't fund their militaries enough. And now again, we are paying the price for that. So now let's talk about Europe after the invasion. Has anything improved? Is it better now? Um, have the European leaders learned anything? And so, so it's, it's in one way, it's uh -huh. definitely better. So Zimov, you, you, you mentioned your recollections from uh, the first day of the war. I remember my strongest recollection from the first day of the war is how surprised every journalist was by the reaction within hours of, uh, of Europe. So let's give credit to, to, to where it is due that it was a big surprise, at least to me, to see for once Europeans stand up in something that looked like a moral principle that says that th this, is a, this is a conflict of different worlds. Yes, Ukraine has all sorts of uh, problems, corruption, whatever, but here are some people who want to live relatively free, and here are some people who have a completely darker and different vision. So the fact that from day one, European leaders stood up with the sanctions, with the moral support to Ukraine, which is very important, already it was a big surprise, and already it was an improvement from what we discussed. Now, the big question is, have they changed the way they think? Have they understood that not thinking in principles is bad for you? This remains to be seen. So tell us a bit about what happens in Europe after the 24th of February 2022. Yeah, so let's start with um, some positives. So first of all, we could mention uh, the sanctions, which were for the first time real and severe and unprecedented, so nothing compared to uh, 2014. Um, and so now I'm just mentioning sanctions from the European Union and European countries. I'm I'm not talking about the sanctions from the US, Canada, Japan, and 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 other countries outside of uh, Europe. So, for example, we have ten selected Russian banks cut off from SWIFT. So, SWIFT is an international financial instrument like a payment uh, system, a huge one. Uh, we have travel bans imposed on uh, on various politicians, oligarchs from Russia. Uh, we have freezing assets against both individuals and institutions in Russia. We have ban on transactions with the central Russian bank, uh, closure of European Union airspace, to all Russian-owned aircrafts, um, also, we have a lot of bans on exporting something, but uh, a lot of kinds of goods, but among others, goods, uh, goods and technology in the aviation, maritime and space uh, sectors, which is obviously very important. And so these are just some examples. The list of also sanctions. Also, we have the, we, they have been expelled from sports tournaments, so no more. Macron celebrating at Luzinski Stadium together with uh, Putin at uh, VIPs. Yeah, and and so obviously there are a lot of other bonds and and 
and uh, sanctions so that European Union is trying to make sure that, for example, no equipment uh, like chips or other stuff that is being used for some tanks or more uh, complex weaponry is being sent to Russia so that so that they can use it in in the war against Ukraine. So it's something that is that should be considered good and uh, and and I'm glad that this has uh, happened. Now you could say that there is a univocal reactions against Russia by a lot of European countries, if not most. Uh, so we could um, especially mention countries such as the Baltic states, uh, Poland, Sweden, Finland, uh, Czech Republic, the UK, but many, many others uh, as well. Now, of course, a lot of European countries support Ukraine financially, but also by sending weapons. Uh, among many others, anti-tank missiles, armored vehicles, counter-battery radar uh, systems, rockets, mortars, drones, tanks. European countries in total uh, have sent several hundred tanks to Ukraine, uh, gun, gun howitzers, and so on and so forth. So, so I would say, Nikos, quite a lot, and I agree with you, I wasn't expecting that. Although I have to say that I was really proud uh, because of European societies, which I think it was very an, an important factor um, that contributed to the European leaders awakening, if you will. You mean the civil so, societies, what they call. So you mean the average people. So this winter, we go through difficulties with the uh, things being uh, energy being more expensive. But there's the understanding that there's a very important uh, goal here. And there's a very important uh, ethical battle here. And it's it makes sense to support Ukraine. Have, however, I have to repeat here that our hardships in the energy sector are mostly self-inflicted. Again, Europe had no reason to believe that we cannot cover our energy needs. So the scheme was that uh, we don't rely anymore so much on fossil fuels, and then we import fossil fuels from, from elsewhere. So it's first and foremost a self-inflicted injury that is a is a result of a very of a combination of bad ideas the one bad idea that uh, russia is a partner the other bad idea that uh, somehow we will uh, we will uh, we will get a transition to cleaner forms of energy if we don't uh, produce their quote dirty forms of energy and we just import them so and the results is the results that we see uh, this uh, this winter i mean imagine nikos so germany was literally uh, making itself dependent upon uh, Russian gas. And at the same time, they were phasing out nuclear energy. Unbelievable. So, 40 per, 30%, more than 30% of all the fossil fuels of Germany came from Russia. And at the same time, as you said, they, they decided we're going to close our uh, nuclear station. So 
This is what you said, short-term thinking, short-term thinking. And of course, short-term thinking. So here's the thing. We're not in favor of principles because, uh, you know, we're good people. If you don't have principles, you're going to suffer. We're in favor of with sticking to good principles because otherwise you are hurting yourself. So it's what uh, a philosopher Ayn Rand called the moral is the practical. You can read also the other way around. The practical is the moral. So it's not that, oh, we found a good idea. We're going to import uh, gas from Russia. Okay, we're doing something bad because these are bad people, but it's to our benefit. No, turns out it's not to our benefit. I interrupted you again, sir. Continue. No, it's no, it's not a problem. We got uh, five dollars through YouTube super chat from Mario Len. Uh, thank you so much. So you, just Mario. to be clear, yeah, when it comes to Europe from before the invasion, our evaluation is very negative. There's no justification for what was happening, for all those, all that short-sightedness. Uh, range at the moment, actions and so on. Um, so um, we we focused mostly in the first part uh, when we were talking about you were before the war on Germany, and you also mentioned President Macron, uh, and now we are talking about Europe after the, the war. So I mentioned uh, sanctions. Uh, more severe, more serious. Uh, I mentioned univocal reactions and countries that are pretty straightforward about Russia now. So it seems like they they have changed their views. Um, I mentioned all that weaponry that that has been sent and and is being sent probably as we speak to Ukraine to help them. Uh, fight against uh, Russia. So, but let's let's. So we focused on Ger on Germany during the first part and France. So let's go to Germany now and France after the invasion. So you already mentioned that uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz he suspended the certification of Nord Stream two uh, two days before the invasion because uh, it was. Uh, because of the official recognition of the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic by Russia, which, as you said, in in practice, it may, it meant that Russia is taking over Luhansk and Donetsk. So when it happened, again, two days before the actual invasion, Olaf Scholz suspended that certification of Nord Stream two. So it was something uh, I would I would uh, argue. Now. Three days after the invasion, Scholz said in uh, Scholz had a quite famous speech in the German parliament saying that the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2022 is a turning point for Europe and for Germany. And he announced a radical shift in German policy as a result. And so I remember he was talking about about 100 billion euros for German military and so on. And so it was something, uh, Nikos. So I don't know if you remember that I was 
very shocked because I was used to Germany being uh, following the policy of appeasement. Um, and uh, but, it has been a constant after the Second World War, and particularly in later decades, the United States trying to encourage Germany that you need to play a bigger part in the defense of uh, in the defense of Europe. So, it's if one thing came out of this war is the realization, but by, by many European powers that uh, we have some, we have a threat here. We there's a problem here, and we need to do something we cannot pretend that this problem uh, does not uh, does not exist so that talk indeed by Scholz some days after the war is considered one of the talks that signified the historical moment in the history of germany and in the history in the modern history of europe yes but on the other hand on the other hand from the very beginning Scholz and the german government was very reluctant when it came to sending weapons to Ukraine. Um, so for example, in June, 2022, he refused to send heavy weaponry to Ukraine and so on. And there were a lot of pushbacks uh, from Germany saying that they don't want to escalate. They might send something, but not too much. Now they send quite a lot, I would say, but again, it's only because of strong pressure from other countries. So again, countries like the Baltic state, Poland, and, and, and the US uh, as well. So for example, uh, now it was announced, I think in January this year, that Germany is going to send 14 tanks. Um, so it's, it's, it's not much if you compare it to several hundreds um, tanks already sent by other countries, but it is something so and even today germany say, says they would send some extra leopards which are some of the among the best tanks uh, in uh, in in the war but you so actually finish and then we'll i'll i'll give my evaluation of this uh no i just i just wanted to 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 make last point because uh our evaluation of what was happening before the invasion is very strong but one of its main actors, Angela Merkel, she does not. She she stands by her decisions. She she stands by her policy, her energy policy, her policies, um, and what she did towards Russia and, and her whole attitude. So she rejects all the criticism. So some people has have not learned. Right. So another criticism that has been made to the Europeans, and also this actually applies to the United States, is that this help has been incremental. Let me give an example of what this means. This means that what usually happens is that Europe has lower expectations of what Ukraine can actually achieve. Then Ukraine goes on and achieves it in the battlefield, and then Europe decides to help uh, to help more. Or usually there is a some particular atrocity by the Russians, and then the Europeans decide to help more. So this is the so-called incremental approach, which shows that, at least from what we can understand, and now we are playing a bit uh, arms and generals, but from what we can understand, it's unclear whether Europe has a clear strategy on what, how it can help Ukraine and what would be a victory 
what would be a victory in this uh, in this war so let me give a simple example you talked about the leopards to put it in simple terms to people ukraine was lacking vehicles that can move uh, fast uh, infantry and they were lacking missiles that can you can hit from land they can hit far away now they have this but and they have uh, more leopard tanks and other uh, such uh, military technology but the fact that they lack this in the summer means they lost precious time so if you see if you go today in the one year anniversary and you see the line on the map there seems to be almost like a solid division between when the russians are and when ukraine is and of course we we are so moved and it's so brilliant the heroism of the ukrainians but the fact remains that russia is occupying at the moment something like 15% of Ukraine. And actually, this is a solidified 15%. So one criticism has been that the delay by Europe to decisively, decisively help Ukraine with, uh, with weapons, to put, it, to put it very simply, has actually already had a cost for Ukraine. So yes, there has been improvements in the way that Europe deals with the crisis. It's very, very unclear whether actually though Europe has a clear plan of what it wants and how it will help Ukraine. And I want to say one last thing here. There's a lot, there's a lot of talk these days by there's need to be ceasefire, there's need to be a compromise. Even Macron, you brought it up uh, in, in some discussions that we had, Talk, talked about giving uh, Putin and how it's called Ofram something like give him an out. He needs to save face, and it makes sense that someone who is horrified by the bloodshed would say, "Look, let's do anything to make this stop." You'd only be someone who likes war if you want the war to continue. But here's the problem with this idea that what we need is a compromise. Actually, this I claim this would be a bad idea. Here's why. What would the compromise mean? Compromise means you take something, I take something. A compromise today would mean that Putin would take more than he had before the war started, and Ukraine would get peace. So this is like someone is attacking you and you say, let's compromise. You'll get some of my stuff, but not all of my stuff. And they will say compromise is a win-win. This is not win-win. This is actually a vindication for the aggressor. And if people cannot understand this in the, in the context of Ukraine, they might find it complicated or confusing. Think about it this way. Think about another threat, another bully, who is president of Turkey, Tayyip Erdogan, member of NATO, by the way. So imagine if Turkey follows up on its uh, aggressive uh, threats and attacks Greece. And they start a war which is bloody. They start a war where they bomb uh, civilians. They mistreat uh, POWs. They make all sorts of horrible things. Would it be a solution to say, oh, we need to find a compromise? So let's say Erdogan wants 10 islands. We give him six islands. It's win-win, compromise. No, this is not a compromise. So actually, if you care about peace, we have to, you have to make sure that you understand that actually giving stuff to Putin and rewarding his aggression makes future peace less possible. So this is 
why compromise, again, is not win-win. Compromise is not a solution. And all those people who say, yeah, they have to meet somewhere in the middle. You cannot meet in the middle with someone who wants to eliminate your country because it has become clear that this is what Putin wants. So Zimovic, you had something else to say about, uh, you had more to say about compromise, which again, I think is the key here. Again, we made a mistake as Europe. We didn't think in principles leading up to the war. Let's make sure we don't make the same mistake. Again, it's difficult to figure out exactly what needs to be done, but at least we need to make sure that whatever is to be done is based on clear thinking and thinking that makes a moral evaluation. Who am I dealing with? What do they want? And what needs to be done with them? Yeah, so Nico, so before I do so, let me just acknowledge uh, that we have another super chat, uh, $20 from David Dedek. Thank you, David, so much for your uh, Thank you, support. David. Thanks a lot. So, yeah, so... So yeah, I have something to say about co about compromise and such, but so let me say that, so you already mentioned that even after the invasion, President Macron has much changed. Uh, and there's a quote from him. He says, we must not humiliate Russia so that the day when the fighting stops, we can build an exit ramp through diplomatic means. What I think it means is probably going back to from before uh, the invasion, which should not be possible, not after all the atrocities, all the rapings, all the kidnapping, all the destruction that they have imposed on Ukraine. Um, so I would say that to some extent, there's still a lack of moral judgment in European uh, leaders in their, in their understanding. I'm afraid that even if all your European countries uh, have come to see that they shouldn't deal with, with Russia as a normal country, uh, I doubt that they understand it as a principle. I hope they will, but I doubt it. Um, but what? Oh, by the way, we'll figure it out soon because we'll see how they treat other countries that are like Russia. How are they going to treat Iran? Yeah. How are they going to yeah. treat, I would put Turkey in this category, a country that's constantly threatening its neighbors with aggression. So this will be a good test to see if they actually understand what is at stake yeah. when you have an aggressor. It, yeah, totally. And, and, and we could mention China as well. Um, so one of the lessons from European countries or leaders and leaders from before the war and after the invasion is that appeasement doesn't work. Pragmatism doesn't work. Lack of moral principles, lack of moral judgment do not work. And, and so, uh, as you said, compromise didn't work after 2014 and it will not work now. So I hope that President Macron and other powers uh, for European leaders will understand that. And there's, I think, a great quote from Ayn Rand from her essay, doesn't life require sacrifice? I quote, compromise. there can be no compromise between a property owner and a burglar. Offering the burglar a single teaspoon of one silverware 
would not be a compromise, but a total surrender, the recognition of his right to one's property. Now, think how that applies to this uh, invasion and to Putin. It does, it does apply, and for, for people can see it in, in real time happening. So what happened in 2014? Russia took some land, and the deal was, okay, that's enough. Uh, let's, come, let's come and find a deal. What happened some years later? Russia attacks Ukraine from within this, not only, but also from within the land that they have got. What is going to happen if today, we say, let's have a ceasefire. You keep whatever you have. Ukraine keeps whatever you have. We leave this thing behind. Next time, Russia will attack from these pieces of land that it has already, uh, that it has uh, consolidated. So a compromise doesn't work. And we understand this, not just because we understand the principle, because we have seen it in action. We've seen it in action time and again. We could do a whole podcast on cases in history where appeasement and trying to give something to an aggressor so that they stop being an aggressor, it has not worked and it will not work. Uh, it will not work again. So I think, Zimovit, I think this is a good uh, way to end uh, our discussion with this. Uh, yes, with let, this. Me, let me, Nicholas, just yeah. acknowledge two last super chats uh, again from Margalen. Uh, she says, Putin should be humiliated, no face saving. I uh, agree. Another super chat from Free Trade. Uh, has Europe increased productions of weapons significantly? The weapons going to Ukraine must be replaced just to maintain its relatively weak defense. No, the, it has not increased uh, significantly, but it should. Uh, on this question, again, we are... First of all, let me say something I should have said in the beginning. This is not the analysis of an expert. This is not an analysis of an expert, either in philosophy or in military affairs. We are, we are students of objectives. We're trying to understand the situation through a prism of principles. But on this question, on uh, what happens with the, with the amount of weapons produced, I would encourage our friend, check out a recent uh, discussion that Stephen Kotkin, who is one of the best analysts in, uh, in Russia, had, uh, I think it was with the guy who is, uh, uh, these, these interviews with the Hoover Institution. He also had Thomas Sowell, the guy who usually interviews Thomas Sowell at the moment, I, I can't remember. So there, Kotkin uh, talks a bit more in detail on what are the problems with uh, the fact that, you, that the West cannot actually amp its production of weapons. Because in a way, it cannot really accept that you know what, we are in a situation where we are facing someone who is a big uh, threat. So this is why there's a delay with the production of uh, javelins, for example, which are the, these uh, uh, portable rocket launchers against uh, tanks. And there are weapons that the West has uh, promised to Taiwan and they cannot send it because there is not, uh, there is not enough uh, Production. So yes, there, there is an effort to ramp up production, but this is not something easy. But again, we are not experts on this area. But I would recommend uh, the I would recommend uh, Kotkin's comments on uh, why the why the West is not uh, is not actually having enough 
enough. Uh, it's not substituting its weapons fast enough. Okay, so many thanks again to our super chatters. Many thanks to the people who were with us today. And let me tell you what is coming next week. So today we talk about why principles are important in uh, life. We said how bad idea, how ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences. Bad ideas have bad consequences. So next week, the episode will be about uh, a set of ideas. Next week, uh, the discussion will be on systemic altruism. So we hear about systemic racism, but what about systemic altruism? What about the set of principles that have such a big effect in our lives? Also, we encourage you to send us questions or send us suggestions for topics you want us to cover. And here you will see the email where you can send these questions or these queries. Newideal at ironrand.org. Also, I should start with this actually. If you want more of a philosophical analysis, either of wars in general or more specifically of this actual conflict, if you want a principled analysis of this conflict. Uh, our colleague, Elan Zurno, has wrote an article, Why John Mersheimer Gets Ukraine Wrong. You probably remember John Mersheimer. He had this talk from 2014 where he claims that uh, Russia has been put in the corner by NATO and uh, the mess in Ukraine is uh, the West's fault. And Elan is actually uh, shredding this argument uh, to pieces. But also, on a, a principled and philosophic approach on the issue of war in general, we would recommend you check out the article The Roots of War by Ayn Rand, and you can find it in the book Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal. So that was it. Make sure you follow, subscribe, like, comment on YouTube. It helps with the algorithm. It helps the message to be spread. So. Thank you, Zimovit. Many thanks to Thank our viewers. Back. See you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.